When we remembering Anna and Anata in our prayers, they got sick, and so they're recovering at home, but it was uh, pretty bad. Uh, Anata had to go to the emergency room, so it was... Uh, uh, we will continue to pray for them, that they can recover and be back with us. Good to dwell in the house of the Lord, isn't it? It's good to have a place to come out from the world and, and just to be able to focus for even a few moments on his word and ask him to work in our lives. And uh, this morning we're back in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And we've been making our way through this. It's really an introduction. You could call it an um, epilogue. Some call it prologue, whatever your word is, but it runs all the way down to verse 18 of chapter 1, and we're only in today, verse 14. So we've been in here for a couple weeks, and I just ask for your patience as we make our way through God's word. And um, we'll be looking at this uh, next uh, section here, verses 14 to 18, but... um, I just want to ask you to stand in honor of God's word as I just read one verse for us. And we're not even going to get through that verse today, unfortunately. Um, Yeah, I'm just telling you ahead of time so you're not stressing out, looking at the outline going, how's he going to do this? Uh, We're just going to scratch the surface. But God's word says in verse 14, John chapter 1, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and grace truth. Father, we pray today. We are completely, utterly dependent upon you in order for us to understand these incredible, deep words that are written for us by the Apostle John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray today that you would eliminate any distractions from our mind, that we would be able to focus like a laser on what it says. Lord, that you would give us wisdom on how we can apply it to our own lives as we leave this place here today, but we would be edified that we would be built up as your word promises to do. And Lord, we do pray for Anna. We do pray for Anata. We pray for their health. We thank you that they're on the mend, but we pray that you would grant them strength and wisdom and just help them to grow back to 100% so they can be back here with us. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in 1964, it was, 1964, um, Thayer S. Warshaw was, he was actually an English teacher. Some of you have a background in education, you may know his name, but he was an English teacher at Newton High School in the Boston area, pretty elite academic high school. And he was very worried as a teacher that when the public schools, public school system banned the scriptures, the Bible, um, students would become depraved, uh, well, they become depraved, they can become deprived <laughs> of, of the importance of the Bible as part of our culture, which lead to their depravement. But um, to make his point, this teacher rather creatively came up with a quiz, and he was trying to prove his point. And he, he created a quiz on some common uh, you could call them allusions to Scripture as they appear in secular literature and even in the culture and language of the day and even our day today. And so, uh, despite their obvious 
intelligence. These students were on their way to college. This was a first-rate kind of a college prep school. Uh, The majority of these college-bound students could not complete the following common expressions. We'll see how you do here this morning. Many are called, but few are chosen. They shall beat their swords into... All right. The truth shall make you... Now remember, they could not complete these. Overwhelmingly, like 85% of them couldn't. Pride goeth before all. The love of money is the root of all evil. Furthermore, what just surprised me when I read this, several of the students at this nationally acclaimed high school thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were lovers. (laughs) Rather than the cities they were named. Uh, And when asked to recite the four Gospels, they said it this way, Matthew, Mark, Luther, instead of Luke, Luther and John. Um, according to these top-ranked students, Eve was created from an apple, <laughs> rather than eating the apple. Moses baptized Jesus. This was interesting. Jezebel was Ahab's donkey <laughs> rather than his wife. And I found this the most amusing. They said that Jesus spoke in parodies, not parables, parodies. <laughs> Uh, these are college-bound students, mind you, back in the day. Uh, and, I, and I can attest to this because early on in, in, in youth ministry, back in the 80s, mid to late 80s, when I was a youth pastor and college pastor, I remember um, working with Campus Crusade for Christ and Youth for Christ. And these were organizations back in the day that had vital ministries that reached out to young people on high school campuses, that reached out to young people on college campuses. And, and we would go out and, and minister to these kids. And we were given basically a, a questionnaire to ask them to start the conversation. And the first question you would ask someone is, who in your opinion, who in your opinion is Jesus of Nazareth? And I was really much, very much amazed back even in the 80s, the answer that we received. It may shock you. Most of the kids responded, well, he's the son of God. He's the son of God. That was their answer. And because of the research these groups did, they knew that people would answer that way a lot of times. Uh, but they kind of surprised me. I would expect like, oh, he was a great teacher. Or he founded, wasn't he the founder of Christianity? Or he died a martyr or something? But no, they, they said that he was the son of God. Um, so we were given a follow-up question to ask. And here's what the follow-up question was. How did you come to that conclusion? So they would answer correctly. And then you would say, well, how did you come to that conclusion? And the question we got overwhelmingly was always the same. You know what? I don't know. I don't know. And I find, unfortunately, today in Christianity, this is something that is very true among believers today, even. They know the right answer, right? But they don't know why. They don't know why the answer is true. And so, as we're going through the apostle, uh, the gospel according to the apostle John here, He is really, literally writing this 
gospel. He wrote his own account of Jesus' life, distinctly different from the other gospels. Over 90% is is original to John, remember. Um, He wrote it to reveal the identity of Jesus Christ so that we could respond to that truth in belief. That's why this book was written. And so he opens his gospel with this prologue, verses 1 to 18, and it declares unambiguously the simple truth, the simple fact that Jesus is God in human flesh. It's over and over and over again in these first several verses of chapter 1. And then he takes what he shares in the epilogue, and you'll see it as we continue through the gospel study. You're going to find that it is woven, that truth is woven, that primary thesis is woven throughout the narrative over and over and over again. Through the claims that Jesus made of his deity, through his miracles that he performed that supported his deity, supported his claim of deity. All of his activities were based around that presupposition that he was the son of God. And then finally we have his resurrection which basically vindicated everything. Everything he said and everything he did. Now remember where we've been up to this point. We've been looking at verses 1 to 5. His relationship to God and to all things. Jesus' relationship to God and to all things. And we talked about that he is the eternal word of God. And we mentioned that he was, talked about his pre-existence, that he is eternal. We talked about his position, that he's a second person in the Trinity. We talked about his person, that he is God. We talked about his purpose, that Jesus is the word. And then we delve into that he is the creator of all things that exist in verse 3. Everything that exists, exists because of his power, because he is the creator. And then we looked also that he is the author of life. So all people should look to him for life. And then we looked at verses 6 through 13, and we talked about his reasons for coming into the world. And we said that it was prepared by John the Baptist, verses 6 to 8. We said that it was preached to his own people. Verses 9 to 11, and then it was preached, presented to all who would receive him in verses 12 through 13. And I just want to spend a couple moments here, kind of an introductory to the message today, looking back at verses 9 through 13, because this is such a powerful section of the text. And and some of you had questions after last week's Message, And so I thought, okay, you know what? I'm going to just revisit this quickly. But look at what it says in verses 9 to 13. It says, the true light, speaking of Christ, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not, what? Receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, What happened? He gave the right to become children of God. And we closed last week, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And when you read that in light of verse 5 of chapter 1, where it says the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it or could not comprehend it, some translations say, it seems almost contradictory. Because you're saying, wait a minute, the light came, he was the true light, 
but you have to receive him and you have to believe him. But it says that we won't in verse 5. And as you read on, it becomes a little clearer because the source of light has come to the earth and he has really illuminated the minds of humanity. In other words, no one legitimately could say, I didn't know. You can't legitimately stand before God one day if you haven't trusted in Christ and say, well, I'm ignorant of that. I never heard that before. The Bible says that all who do not believe are without excuse. They're without excuse. That is why if you turn back just to chapter 15 quickly in John, I thought this was interesting. Right before his arrest, Jesus is meeting with his disciples. And in verse 22, he's talking about the hatred of the world here. And, and the servant is not greater than his master. All this stuff. And down in, down in verse 22, he says this. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would what not have been guilty of sin. Wow. But... Now they have no excuse for their sin. Verse 23, whoever hates me, my father uh, hates my father also. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, his works, his miracles were set apart. They would not be guilty of sin. But look at what it says. But now, now they have seen. And hated both me and my father. Verse 21, or verse 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. And it says they hated me without a cause. There was no reason for them to hate Christ. Now, here when it says that they were without, they would be without sin if Christ hadn't come and spoken, it says they would not have been guilty of sin. Obviously, he's not speaking here of sin in general because we're all born with sin. What is he speaking of? He's speaking of the specific sin. A very specific sin. Jesus talks about it other places, but a very specific sin of willfully rejecting him in the face of full revelation. This is probably the most serious of sins. It is the most serious of sins because it is the only sin that is not forgivable. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, having witnessed what Jesus did firsthand, if you lived back in Jesus' time and you were to witness his miracles and you were to witness his teaching, both of which unmistakably testified, fulfilled prophecies, and they testified of his deity. What did the Pharisees conclude? They couldn't argue with the results. They couldn't argue that people were walking around with their sight that one time were blind or that were walking around skipping down the lane that were once crippled because Jesus healed them. They couldn't argue that, right? They were face to face with the Son of God and he did miraculous things. He taught them in a way they even said, but we've never heard anybody teach like this before. But they rejected it. They 
The Pharisees' conclusion was in Matthew 12, they concluded this in verse 24. This man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, which is another word for Satan, the ruler of demons. So in light of all that Christ did in front of them, these religious leaders of Jesus' day said, well, we can't argue with the results. We see people's lives changed. We see crippled people healed, blind people receive their sight, lepers healed. People who were demon-possessed are now free of these spirits. Oh, that happened, but you know why? He did it didn't by, by the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't do that. He did it by the power of Satan. That's all they could say. And when you reach that point of unbelief, there's, there's no hope for you. When you're standing in the presence of the Son of God and you're rejecting him to his face, there's no hope for you. There's nowhere else to go for salvation. Now, in Matthew 12, verse 31 and 32, we talk about this because some people ask me about this. Well, is there a sin that's unforgivable? Well, he says in verse 31, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit, indicating the Holy Spirit, will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Wow. Jesus is saying, you can talk bad about me all day long. But don't attribute my works. Don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit that empowers me to do these works. Because when you do that, there's no hope for you. He says, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now let me clarify something. Speaking against the Holy Spirit does not say, oh, well, we shouldn't say anything against this modern day a charismatic movement that's full of heretics and money-grabbing people. You hear that all the time from them. When you call out Benny Hinn or you call out any of these guys, Copeland or whatever, on their antics and all their false teaching and all their greed, they just keep lining their pockets with people's money. When you call them out, what do they say? Oh, you better not touch the Lord's anointed. Don't speak a word against the Lord's anointed. It's ridiculous. As I said last week, there's no such thing as the Lord's anointed in the New Testament era. We all have the same anointing, brothers and sisters. We have the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. I don't have any more anointing than anyone else. Don't believe that lie. It's not biblical. It sets up a class status within the church. And so we have to see here, well, what is, this, what is this speaking of, this unforgivable sin? Now listen to me clearly. I don't believe that this sin, the one that's in Matthew 12, listen, I don't believe it can be committed today. It can't be committed. Matter of fact, I'm, I'm positive it can't be committed. Because what was it? It was the Pharisees in the presence, in the physical presence of the Son of God, watching him do miracles, Watching him heal people, watching him teach, and going, you know what? I can't argue with that, but he does it by the power of Satan. Why can't that be committed today? Because Jesus is not here physically on this earth. Where is he? Right hand of the Father. Okay? So you cannot commit this sin that Jesus is speaking in this text in Matthew 12 today. 
But the principle, the principle in that text still applies today. What do I mean? Total rejection in the face of total revelation is unforgivable. There's nothing else left for God to show such people. In Hebrews chapter 6, we're left with a sobering word. In verse 4, the writer of Hebrews, now remember, this is obviously written to Hebrew people. And these were people who were Christians who started to add in their Hebrew traditions back into their Christianity, thinking that somehow they had to add that to their faith in order to be saved. And, and, and that's just not true. So you have to take it in its context. But in verse 4, he says, it is, Hebrews 6, verse 4, the writer says, for it is impossible, listen to this, impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit. What's that mean? It means they've been in proximity of the working of the Holy Spirit. They've seen it firsthand. It says in verse 5, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then in verse 6, he says, and then have fallen away. What's he mean? You've been confronted with all... With all that it says here, you've been enlightened, you've tasted of the heavenly gift. You didn't eat it, but you tasted it. <laughs> and you shared in the Holy Spirit. doesn't mean he's indwelt you. It just means you've seen that there, obviously. You've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. They experienced all this stuff in Jesus' day. And then what? And then you turn your back and then you fall away. It says... It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. This is not talking about having your salvation and losing your salvation. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking basically about, you know what? I don't like what Jesus says. I'm going to turn away from him and I'm going to go find somewhere else to find my salvation. And in their case, it was in their religious works of Judaism. And so they were saying, "Ah, I don't know, it's Christianity, it's okay, we'll have that, but i got to add all this other stuff to it. And the writer's saying, no, if you do that, you're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him in contempt. In other words, what are you doing? If you're adding anything to your salvation, beloved, what are you doing? You're looking at the cross and saying, you know what, that was wonderful, I'm glad He paid for my sins, but it wasn't sufficient Because i got to keep on working for my salvation. So it's very, very, very important to understand the simple truth that Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. He's quoting Isaiah, and at the end of the verse, he says this, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of what? Salvation. Today is the day of salvation. I am thoroughly convinced that there are people, not only in our church, but churches all across America and around the world for that matter, who attend church each week and they do it religiously. They hear the gospel message taught, they hear the gospel message presented. 
They witness the lives around them in that community of believers. And they, what they witness is that, well, Jesus, the Savior, has changed them. These people have changed lives. <clears throat> and they may even believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is the one who died for their sins. They may even believe that Jesus is the one who was raised from the, the dead on the third day. They believe all that. But guess what? They still have not trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Let me just tell you here this morning. If you fall into that group of quasi-religious people who affirm the basic truths of Christianity, the basic truths about Christ, but have not yet personally trusted him for your own personal salvation, I just want you to hear me loud and clear. Your soul is in great peril of the flames of hell for all eternity. I can't say it any stronger than that. Your very soul is in peril of the flames of hell for all eternity. I, I think we forget that we, we forget the fact we take we take life for granted, do we not? We just take it for granted. Please understand, every one of us. Every one of us is only one breath away. One breath away. One heartbeat away from eternity. One. We all have an appointment with death. The Bible clearly teaches this. Pending the Lord's return. Unless he comes back, we're going to die. We feel it. Our body is dying. Despite what you put on your face, despite what you get injected, it doesn't matter. You're still going to die one day. I mean, you may live to 100 and look 20 when you die at 100, but you're going to die. Okay? And, and the reason I know that is because Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 and 28, listen to what he says. The writer of Hebrews said this, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, once it's appointed by God that you will die. And guess what? After that, after that comes the judgment, it said. And then verse 28, he continues. Sometimes we don't read this verse. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Amen? See, that verse tells us that we have an appointment with death. It says that you die once. You don't get a do-over at the end of your life. It doesn't work that way. What do they call that in God? They call it a mulligan, right? A mulligan. You don't get a mulligan in life. You have but one life to live, my friends. One. And guess what? You don't know when your current life will cease. When it will be over. 
When you will breathe your last breath. When your heart will beat its last ounce of blood through your veins. I'm here as a pastor, as a preacher of God's word, God's truth. This isn't my message. This is God's word we're talking about here. This is God's message for you here this morning. And God is telling you simply, you know what? You need to repent of your sin. You need to turn from your sin and turn to the Savior. Because there's nowhere else to go. Look to Christ. For in him you'll not only find peace and joy by his grace and his mercy, but you'll find purpose. You'll find fulfillment. And most importantly... You'll find forgiveness. You'll find life, life eternal. See, when you look to Christ, my friends, you, you find a, a Savior who paid for your sins, who willingly went to the cross, took your sins upon himself, even though he was perfect. Do you ever like to get blamed for something that you didn't do? It's frustrating. You try to defend yourself, you try to, and yet he didn't. He didn't said nothing. He went to the cross willingly. They were calling him all kinds of names. They were mocking. He, he did it willingly out of love for us. And he was perfect in every way. He lived a perfect life while he was here on earth. He never committed one sin, even though that he was tempted in ways that we are tempted. And it says that Jesus took upon himself all the sins of all those who would ever put their faith, who would ever believe on his name, who would ever commit their lives to following him. He said he would willingly pay the price, which was death. And that's what he did. He went to the cross for you. He went to the cross for me. And he gave up his life for ours. If you turn over to Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, I couldn't help but read this because it's just such an incredible section of scripture. And you say, well, what does it have to do with the gospel of John? It has everything to do with the gospel of John. This is why John wrote the book, Amen. to communicate these truths to our hearts so that we would know that Jesus is the one. He is the Savior. He's the only Savior. Paul writes in Romans 5, look at verse 6. I love this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the righteous. He died for the religious. No, he died for the ungodly. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. He's saying, you know what? Most people won't even die for a good person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't it wonderful that Christianity and its message, Christ's message, is not a message to clean yourself up? That's not the message of the cross. We think somehow we just got to work harder and do more and become more holy and, and try to do this and read more Bible and pray more and do this. And, and eventually, hopefully, God will love me and he will. No. Christ died for you, it says, while you were still sinners.
You know, sometimes, you know, I'll be out working and get all sweaty and stuff and, you know, back's aching. It's like, ah, oh, you know, I, I want to take a bath, a hot bath, you know, put some salts in there. It just, just does good for the body, right? What do I do before I take a bath? I take a shower. I got to get cleaned up to get in the bath because I don't want to sit in a bathtub of muck, right, and sweat and oil and everything else. So I clean myself off and then I get in the bathtub. You don't have to do that with Christ. You come just as you are with the understanding that, you know what, there's nowhere else to go. And my sin is grave. My sin will send me to hell. I need this fixed, and I need it fixed now. And Christ says, if you're feeling that way, come to me. He says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse, uh, verse 9, since therefore we have now been, look at this, justified by his blood. A very simplistic, it really doesn't do it well, but a simplistic definition of justified is just as if I never sinned. God treats you as if you are holy. That you've never had any sin. Because you've been justified by his son's blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Listen to this, Christians. This is for you. Much more now that we are reconciled. Who's been reconciled? Christians, those who have put their faith and trust in Christ. Shall we be saved by his life? Our salvation is not complete yet. It's paid for. We're completely justified. We're declared righteous in God's sight. But our salvation is a process. The process of sanctification continues to, to, to work out in our lives. We become more and more and more like Christ. As we go through this life. And one day we will be taken to heaven completely glorified. In every way. We, sh we will be saved by his life. We don't get saved by going to church. We don't get saved by doing good works. We're saved by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then verse 11. More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom... We have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation is a big word, but it just simply means been brought back to its original state. If you get in a fight with your wife or your daughter or whatever, and you know, eventually you make up, you finally come to terms and you realize, you know what, yeah, I was wrong, okay, yeah, blah, blah, blah. The relationship's restored. That's reconciliation. See, our, our relationship with God has been violated it's been broken by sin and he gave his son the lord jesus christ as a remedy for that sin and he says all who will come to my son put their faith and trust in my son and what he did on the cross and the fact that he died on the cross and was raised on the third day you can have reconciliation with god your father you can know in a personal way the creator god well, last week we left off with the understanding that we're not saved because of several things. It says there at the end, back to John 1. 
at the end of verse 13. It says, we're not saved by blood, nor of blood. That means kind of your, your uh, racial or ethnic heritage. Just because you're Christians or your grandparents were Christians doesn't mean you're a Christian. You don't get to ride to heaven on their coattails. Or will of the flesh, it says, personal desire. Nor will of the will of man, a religious system, a man-made system, that can't make you a Christian. That won't grant you salvation. And you say, well, how can one be saved then? And he says at the end of verse 13, but of what? Who? God. But of God. And we understand that God must grant sovereignly salvation supernaturally. And I go back to this because it's very easy to conclude from that. Well, then what's the use? If God's sovereign and God's going to save me, then I guess he's going to save me. And you know what? I'm just going to do my own thing. And if God saves me, he saves me. And if he doesn't, he doesn't. You end up in a very uh, fatalistic attitude when it concerns life. A very fatalistic attitude when it concerns your own salvation. Is God sovereign in salvation? Absolutely. But to have a fatalistic attitude saying, well, I'm just going to do nothing. That's not biblical. The Bible does not support that view. That's why in verse 11, it says he came to his own and his own people, what's it say? Did not receive him. (laughs) They didn't receive him. That word receive, lombano, it means to take a hold of, to obtain, to, to grab a hold of, to receive Christ involves more than just some intellectual acknowledgement of who he is. That's not enough to save you. And the last part of verse 12 there tells us what it is. It says, and to all who, what, did receive him. They did welcome him. They did take hold of him. They did grasp a hold of Christ. And then also it says, who what? Who believed in his name. Speaking of all that his name represents. Meaning that he is the son of God. He is the man who was here on earth. The God man for 33 some years. Lived a perfect life. Went willfully to the cross. Endured a horrible death. Gave up his life for ours. On the third day he was risen from the dead. But it's more than just an intellectual acknowledgement of those facts. He says, you not only receive him, but you believe in his name. And then it says, he gave the right to become children of God. See, there's a belief going around today that, oh, we're all children of God. No, we're not. No, we're not. We're all made in the likeness of his image. I'll grant you that much. The Bible says that. Whether you're a Christian or not, you're created in the image of God. But that does not make you, my friends, a child of God. There are children of God and children of the devil. And Jesus was very clear throughout the New Testament to point this out. So there's not a whole lot of wiggle room here. It's not like you can come to church and not really receive Christ and not 
you might believe in his name, but you don't receive him. You don't have that right by God to become his child and just conclude, well, I'm kind of in the middle. I wouldn't say I'm a child of Satan. I wouldn't say I'm a child of the devil. Or are you a child of God? No. Well, then you're a child of the devil. There's no, there's no gray area. That's why it's so important. That's why Paul says, behold, the day is the day of salvation. I mean, I'm surprised he doesn't say, what are you waiting for? See, you don't just magically become a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ while you go to bed one night with your Bible under your pillow. I've never heard someone that's actually been born again that that's what's happened. They never heard the gospel. They just took a Bible. They put it under the pillow and they went to bed. And the next morning they woke up. Wow, I am born again. This is incredible. Who's Jesus? I don't know. But I know I'm saved. (laughs) It doesn't happen that way. It indicates that some people can and do not receive him. They don't receive him. They put their hand up and say, stop. I don't want part of this. But it also indicates that others do receive him. They do believe in his name, in who he is. Charles Wendell gives a good illustration. He says, every modern house is connected to an electrical grid. We all have a telephone pole or an electrical pole somewhere and a wire going to the house. And it provides the necessary energy to illumine every dark area of that house. That's what it's provided for. He says, however, the people living in the house can choose to live in darkness, even though they have electricity. Sometimes if we're watching a ball game or watching a cop show or something, you know, I draw all the shades. I want it to be dark. So I, I just like you're in a theater or something. My wife hates that. Because she's not watching the show. She's over there reading or something, you know. So, but it's just, but, you know, in that, in that place, I, I kind of like things, the lights to be dimmed or whatever. You know, do I have the ability to turn on a light? Definitely. Why? Because there's electricity running in the house. The light is available. But it's what? It's not compulsory. As a matter of fact, sometimes people crack me up and, you know, it'd be, it'd be really hot outside. And uh, give a shout out to my brother, Rick. He's probably listening. But uh, sometimes I'll talk to him. It's hot and humid. And he said, I go, well, you, you got air conditioning, right? I, I don't have it on yet. I'm waiting for 98. It's got to get to 98 because I want to save some money. That's a good concept, right? That's being a good steward of what God has entrusted to you. But I'm like, shout, turn on the air conditioning, you know. Um, see, it's, it's available, but it's not compulsory. The source of light has to come to the world. And it, it did, and it's illumined all minds. However, guess what? Many make that decision to draw the shades, to shun the light. And now that Christ has come, belief or unbelief is no longer a crisis of the intellect. You can't say, I didn't know, especially if you're sitting here this morning. You cannot walk out of here saying, oh, I didn't know that that Jesus came to pay for my sins. I didn't know that I had to put my faith and trust in Christ. I didn't know, I didn't know, no. 
It's not a crisis of the intellect anymore. It's a crisis of what? It's a crisis of the will. You want to do what you want to do. You don't want to grant that power to anyone. And there are far too many Christians today living that way. And when a darkened mind chooses to remain in darkness, no one is to be blamed but the individual who's making that choice. You cannot point your finger at God and say it's your fault. No. No. Many have rejected the light. But you know what? Many have chosen to receive the light through faith. See, the choice to believe in and follow and commit one's life to Jesus Christ is just that. And he says, if you do that, you'll be declared a child of God. Those who have chosen to believe in Christ are children of God, listen, as a result of supernatural birth from above. That's why we call it being what? Born again, or being born from above. And, and you need to hear this. A natural birth is a result of what? It's a result of two humans choosing to come together and to procreate a child, to have a child. And the contrast to that is when you think of spiritual birth, what is the result of that? The spiritual birth is the result of God's sovereign choice. I know you're saying, wait a minute, that doesn't even make any sense. I understand that. I completely get it. But that's what the scripture teaches. Spiritual birth is a result of God's sovereign choice. I mean, it's very safe to say that every major cult, when it comes to this book, the Gospel of John, has deviated from a biblical revelation of who Jesus Christ is to something that he's not. The Mormons think that he's the, the spiritual brother of Lucifer. Okay, uh, the Jehovah Witnesses, well, they think that that he's, you know, uh, just the, the, the son of God. He, he's not really God. There's a deviation there. And they've erred in regarding who Christ is. They've erred in regarding his deity. They've erred in regarding sometimes his humanity or how they relate to one another. John MacArthur says this. He says, it is as damning to believe in the wrong Jesus as to believe and know Jesus. You hear that? It's, it's damning to your soul to believe in the wrong Jesus as it is to believe and know Jesus. Saving faith is certainly more than believing all these correct statements about Jesus, but it cannot be anything less. And John gives us one of the most succinct statements here in the text, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 14 connects us back all the way to verse 1. When we went over verse 1, he uses the word, the word here as a title for Jesus in this gospel. 
It's one of the last times that John uses it. In this gospel. The word who was in the beginning. The word who was God. The word who created everything that has come into being. What did he do? He became flesh and he dwelt among us. Wayne Grudem writes this in his theology, systematic theology. He says, it is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection. And more amazing than the creation of the universe. The fact that, here's what he writes, the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man. And join himself to a human nature forever. That infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all of the universe. It's a wonderful statement. Leon Morris puts it this way. In one short shattering expression, John unveils the great idea at the heart of Christianity that the very word of God took flesh For man's salvation. See this is a truth. That's beyond truth. That Jesus the eternal word. Became. He became flesh. That word. Refers to Christ. Logos. It's established in the first six verses. He's speaking of Jesus Christ. That he became flesh. Word became there is is interesting in the original language. It doesn't mean that Jesus Christ ceased being the eternal word. It doesn't mean that when Jesus became God, he or became man, he wasn't God anymore. No, it doesn't mean that at all. If you think of it that way, I mean, think about it. God is immutable. That's a a word that means he's unchangeable. For God to become something is impossible. Because he's a pure eternal being. So in the incarnation we could say the unchangeable God. Did become. Fully man. Yet. Remain fully God. He was the God man. I used to tell young people he's God in a body. You know, that's different. When you think of the Old Testament, remember Lot, it says that Lot's wife looked back on Sodom and Gomorrah, and it says that Lot uh, became a pillar of salt. Well, when she became a pillar of salt, what happened? She ceased to be Lot's wife, right? But in the same text, it says Lot becomes the father of Moab and Ammon. But guess what? He still remains Lot. Hopefully that helps a little bit. So here you have the word becoming flesh, but still remaining the word. Still remaining God. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 18 down chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's Side, he has made him known. Jesus Christ came to earth, took on human flesh, and became a visible representative of an invisible God. 
Jesus, really, the second person of the Trinity, assumes the human nature without laying aside his divine, without laying aside his divinity. And so we see that Jesus, the eternal word, became flesh. Secondly, when the eternal word became flesh, he became fully human. Fully human, just like you and I are human. He had blood just like we have blood. If you cut Jesus' finger, he would bleed. That word flesh there in the original sarks, it refers to man's being. It affirms his full humanity. It can also be used in a negative way. It's not used here in a negative way, but it can be used of a negative way uh, of speaking of immorality. Right? We talk about that as Christians, right? I don't want to listen to the flesh. Right? The flesh is sinful. Okay? That's not what it's saying here. It can also just refer to someone's physical being. And what it means here is that he actually became flesh. What is John doing? He's affirming Jesus' full deity and yet at the same time his full humanity. His full humanity. I know that's a lot to take in. But the one thing that I would leave you with this morning, we'll get into the rest of it next week, is that just remember, you know what? We all have an, that, that appointed time when we will be part of this earth and we will be ushered into eternity. And I, wanna, I, wanna, I want your hearts to focus, I want your minds to focus on these words because you know what? Um, God forbid that you, know, you hear the gospel and do not respond to the gospel. You don't come to Christ. You put it off another day. The Bible says, behold, today is a day of salvation because we're not guaranteed another day. I don't care if you're 99 years old or 9 years old. It's irrelevant. Children die just as much as adults die. And guess what? They all die on time. It doesn't seem that way in our system. When we look around, you look at a little baby that suffered and died. I remind my fact, you know what? Appointed once to die. It was their appointment with death. We all have that. I ask you, are you ready? Have you looked to Jesus? Have you trusted him as your Lord and Savior? Father, we ask this morning, Lord, that you would continue to do your work in the hearts of your people. Lord, we thank you for these wonderful truths that we've read about this morning and just the absolute necessity that we need to look to Christ, look to Christ, look to what Jesus has accomplished for us. It's already done. We just need to lay hold of it. We need to receive it. We need to believe in his name. We need to commit to following him. Maybe you're holding out thinking it's cramping your lifestyle. Maybe you're wondering if it, you, know, you won't have any more fun or whatever. That's ridiculous. Talk to Christians that are here. I've never talked to a genuinely born-again Christian that's ever, ever, ever told me in my 40-some years of ministry, ever. They've never told me, I just regret becoming a Christian. It was the worst decision of my life. I've never heard someone who's genuinely born again, who's genuinely received the forgiveness that Jesus has offered. It doesn't matter what age. 
because they realize that this, is, this world is passing quickly. We need to put our priorities in order. If you haven't come to Christ, why haven't you? Cry out to him this morning even. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, save my soul. Help me even in my unbelief. I know I can't work my way to heaven. I can't. Coming to church doesn't make me a Christian. Lord, only you can do that work in my life. Pray to him. Plead with him. Beg him to save your soul. And for Christians, I pray that we would have some (laughs) expectation that you would use us here on this earth to spread the good news of the gospel. That you could use us as a a change agent with the message of the gospel. That we could see you work in other people's lives because we're living for Christ. We're proclaiming Christ. We're not just sitting back and, well, we're going to die one day and we're waiting for you to come back, Lord. No, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. There's many, many, many people, especially in our area here, this godless society in which we live in California, that need to hear the gospel, that need to be exposed to the truth of his word. We need to get busy. We need to start evangelizing. We need to start preaching the gospel out in the streets and in the stores to our friends and to our relatives. We need to be vocal. We need to be bold. Because we don't know when you're returning. We don't know when our date with death is, and we don't know when other people's dates with death are. And so we need to be just urgent to preach your message to a lost and dying world, knowing that you will honor that. You will be exalted and lifted up as it's proclaimed. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Pray that you would bless our fellowship across the way and the food to our bodies as well. And we Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.